0: welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast.
1: There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a a little thing like a brain tumor derail me.
0: When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired.
1: I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being it center. it's a mecca for cycling for sure struggle is the neutralizing force and I said there it is this is the right family I'm, I got like cold and. it's one lone oak tree right
0: in the middle of the trail it's beautiful hey everybody welcome back I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together my cousins are out from Costa Rica and they asked me to give them a tour of Los Angeles. Now, if you're from Los Angeles or you've been here, you know Los Angeles is enormous. And if you are an file, <laughs> like I am, you know that we are just such a culturally diverse place. And so this was a serious challenge and I was up for it. I was a little concerned about my knee, which is like the only thing I've been talking about for a while. I can't wait until I don't mention it on one of these episodes, but I took them to the first place that they wanted to go to, which was Alvera Street. We got to see the Avila Adobe House, which is the oldest house in Los Angeles. We ate at one of the restaurants there. We saw the first fire station pointed out beautiful LA County Jail building. After that, we went over to Chinatown. I wanted to show them the Bruce Lee statue. And as usual, in Los Angeles, when you are in the heart of L.A., a lot of neighborhoods, you cannot find any parking. So that happened to us. And so I ended up kind of doing a drive-by. I said, okay, I'm going to drive really slow. And everybody looked that way. And they all assured me that they did see Bruce Lee. And then we went over to a really cool park. If you have never been to Vista Hermosa Park, it's really spectacular. All of these places that I'm, I'm mentioning have actually been in films and Vista Hermosa Park is a park that shows up in films regularly because there is a mound and the entire Los Angeles skyline is spread out in front of you, almost as if you could reach out and touch it. So I had to show them that. And while we're there, we had another LA experience. So not only did I get to show them A lot of Los Angeles, they got to experience some of the things like not being able to find a parking space. But while we were at Vista Hermosa, this woman walked up to us and I wouldn't call her homeless. I would, you know, she was kind of like this side of homeless. And she had a camera around her neck, professional looking camera. And she came over with a binder and she was just flipping, mindlessly flipping through this binder, which ostensibly was her work. And while she's mindlessly flipping through it, not even looking, you know, hoping that we were, she's telling us this story about her lock being broken at her home. And it it was a little bit of an overwhelming story. And I did tell her that we did not want our pictures taken, but that I would give her some money. There was, I normally don't. And you'll hear a lot. This is such a controversial thing. Do you give money? Do you not give money? But there was something about this lady that made me feel like maybe she could go and get lunch I didn't feel like she was going to like I needed to go and purchase the lunch for her and that's what I normally do is if somebody asks me for food I will go and purchase the food and give them give it to them so she stood there because I we were going to take photographs ourselves. She stood there and she gave us tips and you know, she's really happy. And then she gave us a whole litany of chronic illnesses that she had. And so she needed to sit down on the bench, but she was just going to sit way over in the corner and we'd be able to take the photographs without her being in the photo. And she had set all of her stuff down. So mind you, people do not leave without their stuff so she had set all of her stuff down she came over and she said you know what I'm a photographer anyway I'd like to take your picture let me do this for you so I thought okay and again don't you know like don't go by what I do I've never had a bad experience but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to. I thought all right I gave her my phone. She positioned us where she wanted us and then once she got us in the right position she said everybody put your hands up in the air and I'm going to post this photo because it is phenomenal. I mean this lady definitely is a photographer And, you know, life is so harsh. Uh, My heart goes out to this woman. I hope that she's able to get herself into a better situation. And that's the other experience with Los Angeles. It's that there's a lot of people who need help and it's overwhelming. So I would strongly suggest supporting the organizations that support folks that are out on the street and doing what you can when the opportunity presents itself and you feel like it's the right thing to do. So always be kinder than you need to be. So anyway, we did that. And then the boys are serious soccer players. I mean, Fico soccer players are born knowing how to play soccer. They live, breathe, and eat it. So there were some soccer fields there and they ended up burning up a lot of energy. Afterward, I found a place called Bumsan Organic Milk Bar, which is actually in Koreatown. So I took them down. Wilshire will checked out the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial, which is it's a park and it's beautiful. It's where the former Ambassador Hotel was, where he was shot this Bumsan place, it's just a couple of blocks north of Wilshire and Western. It's on Western Avenue. And Wilshire and Western is where the Wiltern is. So they got to see that. And this ice cream, I'm telling you, it is just phenomenal. So I'll post a picture of that as well. From there, I don't even remember where we were headed to because we changed direction about five times, which by the way, is a good way to not see stuff. But we ended up going to Greystone Mansion, which is, uh, it belonged to the Doheny family. And they spent a grip of bank on this, on building this home. The stones that were quarried from Italy, uh, they brought in European architectural people and just craftsmen, hand-hewn rails and wood and all. I mean, it's just... It's a castle. It's a masterpiece. And it took them forever to do this. The Dohenies made their money in oil. And they gave this home to one of their kids. And I think I might be wrong, but he lived there for only about three months. And then he was found Dead along with another man. And there's speculation if you go and you, you know, read different sites that this was a love quarrel and it was a murder suicide. But whatever the circumstances were, nobody ever lived in that masterpiece, that castle, since. And eventually the Doheny family deeded it to the city of Beverly Hills. It's now part of the California State Park System, and it's magnificent. So um, that one also has been in a bunch of films. There's just this litany of films. It was the the main home and lab for the X Men. It was in the Big Lebowski. It's just it's been in a lot of different films. Uh, one of our last stops was the Hollywood Walk of Fame, where we fended off this super grimy Spider-Man I and mean, he showed up looking like he had spent the morning being a chimney sweep and wanted the kids to take pictures with him and just in case you're wondering if I can say no I definitely said no to Spider-Man. Hollywood Boulevard is one of those streets that can be really annoying you should still go if you've never been there, especially if you're an Angelina. You're going to walk down blocks and blocks and blocks. It's mind boggling how many stars there are and how many of those names you recognize. And then a lot that you won't because they're actually very old Hollywood names. I saw Lauren Bacall's star yesterday and I saw Hattie McDaniel's star. I mean, she was the maid in Gone with the Wind. She's one of the first African-American actresses and I think she won an award too. So pretty significant star on that street. It's a lot of fun. You just have to fend off these folks that show up. I mean, they literally are like you and me, but very much unlike you and me, perhaps. I don't know, but I'm assuming (laughs) that you do not get up in the morning and put on a superhero outfit, drive over to Hollywood Boulevard, strut around acting like that persona and asking people money to take pictures with you but that's what happens. And it's not just the superheroes or these characters that are walking around trying to get your attention and really going after kids because their thought is if I can make that kid beg his parents or her parents for a photo with me, it's going to happen. Parents shell out money to keep their kids happy. And that's just a fact. We do that. (laughs) But it's also a weakness that they exploit. So you do get a lot of that. You get the vendors who are trying to get you on their bus to give you a tour. Everybody's trying to separate your cash from your wallet. So go on to Hollywood Boulevard knowing that you're going to have to say no. They're not stalkers. I mean, they're just literally trying to make some money. And in a very annoying way, as I said, so just go there knowing that you're going to have to say no, that this is going to happen, that you need to do some research before you go there so that you go to the places that are going to provide a quality experience for you and go with a friend so you can just link arms or not while you're walking down this boulevard because it's literally like i i think it's like two miles two miles on both sides of stars And it's so much fun to go, oh, my God, I remember my grandpa loved that particular actor. Or my grandma loved to listen to the singer because it's singers, it's TV stars, it's movie stars, anything that has to do with the entertainment industry. And then, of course, there's the Grauman's Theater that has the handprints and the footprints. Um, So there's like, I mean, there's some really cool stuff there. It's totally worthwhile to go and see all of these places. Um, So anyway, I'm going to stop singing the praises of Los Angeles. Again, I am such a big fan of my own city. Uh, But I'm going to get on with this talk that I am super excited about. It's with my friend Maureen Deering Davis, who is a yoga instructor. She is like multi-certificated. I will put a link to her website so that you could read all about her. She's just an amazing, amazing person, very grounding too. And she's got so much knowledge to provide and just a lot of information to help you get through your day in a more grounded, relaxed, spiritual way. She's also a life coach and she teaches in the South Bay. And some of the things that we're going to cover are how yoga helps you cope with life. Um, and just kind of, she talks about something that is uh, a dance, and that dance is called alila. And there's a lila between the good things in life and those unsettling things that happen. And yoga helps you navigate those and create some balance. We're going to talk about mindfulness, the sanctity and safety of the mat, how to get along with different personalities, how to be, but really, really, the main thing is. How to be aware of the self, yourself, myself, Um, you know, how to get a little bit more introspective and understand that our expectations of life are really what creates a lot of our misery and how to kind of reel that back in so that we can find some peace. This is a two part talk. And mostly because it's, I just had such a great time talking with her that I talked past the amount of time that we had set aside for this first part, but also because there's just a lot of material. So check out her website and please grab a cuppa and join Maureen Deering Davis and me in this Episode of In the Company of Friends as we discuss yoga and all of its benefits. Namaste.
1: This is fit into like why yoga is so important. Last year in August, my dad passed away kind of suddenly, and we had to fly back to New York for his funeral. Came back. And um, when we came back, at the same time, my landlady (laughs) had evicted us because she wanted the place that we were living in for her family. And there was a lot of tension because she had some personal issues going on in her life that made it really difficult for us to be there. And so we had to move and I was starting a new job at Torrance. And so all this was happening at once. And I was replacing a teacher that had been there for 25 years. Okay, so no pressure.
0: Right. Big shoes to fill.
1: Big shoes and also like every life changing event that you can even imagine. And I remember sitting down the first day on my mat in this room full of 25 people. And I just looked at them and they're all staring at me with those eyes of like, well, who are you? And, you know, felt that. And I just said, okay, gave my elevator speech. And I said, you know, This is all going on in my life right now. And they were all aghast. They were like, oh, and I said, but you know what? Yoga is the one thing that doesn't change that I feel safe on my mat. I know what to expect and it's going to ground me and it's going to relax me and calm my nervous system down. And there's no chaos going on here because I'm here. And you know what that saved me? I was running to my mat every day and I'd be home overwhelmed like almost to the point of tears which has never happened to me but boy when I went to work I could count on my practice and it saved my life. I mean, wow. I don't I don't know how I got through it. I really don't, but I did. Yeah. That's a lot to be hit with
0: at the same time. You know, like they say, when it rains, it pours. And that was a
1: serious storm. It was a storm. And we have this saying in yoga philosophy that, like, there's a divine lila. And what the lila means is it's a dance. So, you know, in life, you take a step backwards and you take two steps forward. And as long as you keep moving on solid footing you can do this dance with grace and with ease and without getting all up in your head about it and you just have the skill set to move through these challenges mindfully because you're in the present you're you're very aware and you just take action so it's mm. this dance and you know there were times where I would come in and one of my students who knew me really well, because a couple of my people filtered over, he looked at me one day and he goes, how are you? And, and I said, oh, my goodness. He said, girl, your eyes are just like, they're just on fire. I said, I don't know where I am. But as soon as I sit down, I know I'm going to be fine. So I said, just let me get to my mat. And because, again, as soon as I say namaste, it's all forgotten because you can't carry any of your personal life onto the mat and I'm fully present for the class. So it, yeah, definitely was my savior without a doubt, you know? Wow.
0: Yeah. And for the average, you know, I I don't want to just say average person, but for, for the rest of us who might not be as in tune with yoga um, you know, definitely it's been a while since I've practiced any any yoga myself. How do you get into that Leela, that dance that you were talking about?
1: Um, so I'm changing the consciousness of the South Bay here, especially because now I have a bigger platform. It keeps growing, which my intention when I took this position and told the director, I said, I want to bring back a sense of community to the city and to the neighboring cities and bring people back together because when we're in yoga we're in a sangha which is a community of like-minded people and unfortunately these community classes were pretty much people would view them as just an exercise class and I'm my mission my dharma is to educate people on what exactly yoga is and yoga is a lifestyle. It's not just physical asanas. And so I am giving the students the tools, which mindfulness is a big part of it. So how you get into the Leela is to recognize that one, everything you do, and every thought that you have, you're making conscious decisions based on your perception. And realizing that your thinking and your filters of thinking come from the past and your programming. And when you're in class, really through the practice of yoga, there's eight limbs to it. And just one limb is just the physical asana, which changes your neuroplasticity of your brain. It it changes the way you think because you're creating all these new neural pathways. Well, when you understand that that's there's physiological change and then when you incorporate you know being mindful into it like being fully present in each pose and understanding what it does to your body and what what you're engaging and what you're not engaging and then how you you mentally respond to that helps you understand the self better and so really yoga is just a journey to the realized self you know, not your ego, but like who you are at the core. And mm-hmm. so when you start to understand that, and you start to practice it, and it creates a discipline, it creates a mindset, you can be in that Leela because life is ever changing. So when you realize that nothing stays the same, and that everything is going to change, as long as you are more aware of who you are and how you respond to your stressors, how you respond to outside stressors, and realizing that that's just a part of the life, but it isn't the whole of the life. It's more about how we respond. And so my goal is to teach people that your life then becomes a huge meditation because you are constantly observing. And then, what are you observing? Is it true? You know, um, it's looking from a lens of a discerning mind versus a reactionary mind.
0: Right. And that can be so hard to do. I mean, oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, just even driving, right? Because driving is a completely reactionary process a lot of times. You don't know. Uh, somebody's coming over into your lane from one side or too close behind you, or you end up too close to somebody. And so you do have to react. And um, that's where the struggle is. And and I guess perhaps the beauty of understanding how to observe so that you could react correctly or appropriately to these different situations. And I just kind of feel like life has become so busy for everybody you know there's you know this isn't the only thing that i do clearly is um i have another job and it's a very very busy job Mm -hmm. i'm the main office person there (laughs) and so all day long, I have the phone ringing, the emails coming through, there's a radio there, there's people that come to my desk, it, it's just this revolving door, and I start to work on something, and I get interrupted, and mm-hmm. and then trying to get back to it. And sometimes there's several emergencies going on at the same time. So it does get very reactionary at times. Sure. Um Outside of work, (laughs) you've got plenty of things to, you know, parents who have have to take kids to sports and then they have their own lives. They got to make sure the dinner gets done and, you know, everybody's set up for the rest of the week to be successful, um, that we don't find time to do this meditation to slow down enough to observe what we're doing so that we can either be more efficient at it and have a little bit of that extra time to be able to just take care of ourselves and recommune with ourselves, it's just not happening enough.
1: Well, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, t- let's t- take a step one by one. Like, okay, the driving situation is become a nightmare because people are so distracted. Well, now, you know, who's high in the car, who's vaping, people on their cell phones, talking, texting, it's this mad rush to get somewhere. And it's interesting, because my husband doesn't drive, he has no desire to drive here. So I'm Uber Mo, who takes him to his, yeah takes him to his jobs. So I've already done this with my kids because he's a soccer coach. I'm like visiting the same schools that I took my kids to. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> "Is this a repeat, you know, and no, Maureen, you're taking your husband to work. <laughs> it's like Groundhog Day. <laughs> Seriously. I, I don't I don't mind because I love him. And it's okay now it forces us to plan but having said that you know i spend a lot of time in the car and then i'm ba- i'm bouncing from gig to gig to gig and so one of the things that i do i do breathing techniques in the car and realize that when i'm rushing because i feel the sense of urgency i'll hit every traffic light i'll hit all kinds of stagnation and lanes but if i approach my driving in a more relaxed way where I have abundance of time, I'm not going to feel pressured, you know, and I have ADHD. So it's really easy for me to get overwhelmed. But I just I practice my breathing, and I always get there on time. Mm-hmm. And if I don't focus on like, Oh, my God, it's all the thoughts, right? Oh, my God, there's so much traffic. Oh, my God, this guy's driving like a crazy person. Oh, my God, you know, when that month, right? Beats. Yeah. Okay. But when that dialogue starts, you have to go to the breathing because if you're focusing on your breathing you can't be engaged in your thought and you immediately feel your nervous system come down about two notches so you're like okay I'm back so you tell yourself okay I'm not going to get caught up in the drama it's not going to serve me and you know I'm not going to let it spoil my mojo the other thing is nobody's pressuring us but us Mm -hmm. you know we are all addicted, I think, to adrenaline, cortisol, epinephrine that's shooting in our body, because it creates the sense of urgency, where all of a sudden, okay, we go, we've got all this power, it's burning our adrenals, we're addicted to it. And we don't even know it because we've created that response physiologically in our body, you know, so that we get caught up in that so that we're go, 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 and then we crash. Mm -hmm. People don't, want to take the time to take care of themselves because it requires effort. And I have found in 25 years of teaching that human nature, doesn't matter whether it's here or somewhere else, people want a quick fix. They don't want to do the work. You said it earlier, it's a lot of work to take care of thyself and to be aware. And you can't be hyper vigilant to it, then you become neurotic, but you have to realize when you're going out too far how to pull yourself back in and go, okay. And it could just be a two minute like, okay, let's regroup. Like I'm amping up my speed. I need to take a step back, you know, reprioritize. What's the most important thing I have to do today? What are my number one things that I need to hit? And, you know, and in a job like yours, and and similarly to me, I mean, I have somebody who's asking me sometimes how to spell things because, you know, he doesn't fully know the English language, although he speaks it fluently in written form. You know, he's only immigrated here six years ago. So I'm helping him, I'm managing him, I'm managing me. managing the household, like there's a lot of moving pieces. But I think when we can stop and remember that we are so blessed in this country, especially for the ease in which we have things for the ease in which things are at our fingertips. I think we take that for granted. And I think that we don't stop and appreciate sometimes with the mindfulness stuff, when you're washing dishes and you're overloaded just to say, hey, I'm so happy that I have dishes to wash. I'm really blessed. And, you know, mm. it just it takes you back to your heart where you're just like, oh. You know, it's that simple. Sometimes we have to go that basic, because we've gone so far to the other extreme.
0: Yeah, I think it takes you know, one thing with with dishes, I don't have a dishwasher. So I am the dishwasher. And sometimes I know, you know, sometimes (laughs) Sophie gets to be the dishwasher. That's my daughter. But I find washing dishes really meditative. That's the time where I just kind of allow all the filters to drop and, you know, just let all those thoughts go through my brain and kind of examine things and um, toss things aside that aren't serving me well. Uh, So I do like washing dishes. Not, you know, it's, it's not like I'm, running to do it but <laughs> I right, I don't like right. doing it but you know a couple of the things that you said that made me think that we need to get to the point where we're actually aware that we need to take that step back that you were talking yes. about how do yes. you how do you find that awareness because for example today something went wrong and we were all trying to figure out how to fix it. And I heard myself saying, Oh, my God, I hope that Tomorrow, this doesn't happen because then this is going to be a problem. And then, right on the heels of that, I said, I'm sorry. That's just me complaining. I'm sorry. I try to catch myself when I hear myself complaining. I'm trying to be aware of that and it's working, you know? And then I just kind of apologize to everybody, but you have to get to that awareness and you have to work at it. I mean, it's an actual challenge to understand when you're not being your best self or you're coping because I, Think complaining is probably a coping mechanism, but it's not a good mechanism. Um, And so you have to be aware that whatever your choice of coping in the moment is, is not appropriate for the result that you want. It's not going to get you where you want to be. And so, how do you find that awareness to realize that I'm getting caught up in the drama of driving or I'm getting caught up in the drama of life and I need to? Just step back and take a breath.
1: It's, it's a daily practice. And some days we're better at it than others. You know, my teacher was a gestalt therapist and a yogi. And he called his work aware a And I love that. I, I know. It's, he was awesome. And I studied with him for 25 years, and it was all on the mind. Okay, so he said one thing to me a long, well, he's passed on, but a long time ago that really stuck with me. And I talk about it a lot in class is like, okay, we are the director, and you as a writer would get Mm -hmm. this. We are the director of our own play of life. I'm the director of my play, you're the director of yours. Everybody's got their drama to play out. It's a lot of it's impulsiveness, okay? So if we can manage our impulsiveness and realize that we're being impulsive, again, which is awareness, but realizing like, how often do we, like you say, jump into complaining or jump into a situation that you have no business being in? Mm-hmm. Like, because you're impulsive, you're jumping in like, oh, I'm going to put my two cents in just just stopping for a moment. And there is an inner voice that when you start to tap into that, you'll hear it and you'll say to yourself, oh, just just take a moment, a moment, just take a moment and assess. Can I benefit from this? Am I needed here? Is this something that I need to participate in? 99% of the time, the answer is no. No. But we don't take that time and then we jump in and now we're caught up in somebody else's scene or act. And then how many times does it backfire or we get in over our heads knowing full well we should not have been there. And now we can't gracefully exit. So you have to one recognize like, is this where I need to be? Um, And if you're not needing to be there, just send a good wish to the situation and walk away. It doesn't mean that you're not seeing it but it's it's a daily practice the fact that you just caught yourself and were able to say hey you guys i'm sorry like that was you know inappropriate or whatever that's that's number one you caught yourself Mm -hmm. so then you just let it go because it's done and over um complaining i think is just because we're all energetic beings it's just a trapped energy that needs to express itself And the only way in that moment that you're conditioned to express that energy is by putting words to it. You know, being married to an Indian man, it's very interesting because we as Westerners, we talk so much Mm -hmm. about nothing. It's true. You know, we have so much to say about something so small. We use so many words, whereas they just ask for what they want purely and simply Um, my experience. They see the good in everything. They try to keep their energy positive. They send good wishes to people who annoy them. They see the synchronicities in life that everything's been a blessing, that look, at this was God's wish or Ganesh cleared the obstacles for us. And because there's this sense of gratitude, there's this sense of humility. And we don't have that. We're not a culture that embraces that.
0: We don't because I feel like we, really want to always have the upper hand we've really created a culture that values um being at the top you know that values Mm -hmm. being a manager that values being basically king of whatever empire (laughs) you you get Mm -hmm. to command and or queen and when you just said they send good wishes to those that have wronged them i thought wow, what a blissful way to think, because we do collect points. I mean, we, we're a scorekeeping society, we do keep the score, even when we think that we don't. And I think that really traps us. You know, if you have to keep score, all of a sudden, you've accepted that role. And that keeps you from pursuing happiness or contentment or meaning or purpose. You know, I always say that contentment. Or happiness that people are searching for, it comes from having meaning and purpose in life. And if your purpose is just to keep score, you're not gonna find contentment.
1: That's your ego, and that's what people don't get, you know? So in the tradition, the philosophy of yoga, There's a lot of books, you know, there's the Bhagavad Gita and there's the Upanishads and all that. Well, the reason that the Indians send best wishes or whatever is like there's three types of karma. So there's karma that you're born coming in. If you believe in reincarnation, you come in like to this life having to maybe work through some past life karmas. But when you come into the world, you're coming in as a pure soul, okay? And actually, this Mm -hmm. is kind of mind blowing. But you know, that's why a baby's head is soft at the crown chakra, because they are still that connected to the divine. So they are divine Mm -hmm. beings. They are still God like beings, because they're pure, their minds are pure, like everything's new to them, they have a clear slate. Right. So I like no, it's it's really powerful when you see it from that perspective. And Mm-hmm. So then what it, what happens the parental figures impart all their stuff on the child and then the child has its own view of the world and then you've got society and next thing you know like the first 4 years the child is already like programmed to have their system set up their their mental system and so when we go through life there's another phase of karma where you make mistakes knowing and unknowingly. So sometimes we make with snakes and we, or we do negative things and we kind of know we're doing them, but we kind of ebb and flow like the Leela, right? We go, oh, okay, like I did that, but then we do good things too, you know, that kind of balance that scale. And then the end goal is to clear up those karmas so we become swatic again. So, we, when we're born, we're swatic, we're pure beings. When we leave the body, we want to become swatic. Mm-hmm. And so, we kind of want to enter back into that place. And there's swatic beings, and then a lot of us live in like the Rajasic realm, which is like we do some bad things, we do some good things, that's human nature. And then there are some people that just are tamasic, meaning heavy, they're negative, they have really bad energy, and that's just their karma in this lifetime. Now, will they get out of it? Well, their choices will determine that. But most of the time, the end goal is to get back to being sattvic. So having been an end of life coach as well and witnessing death and being like mm-hmm. a death doula. In the teachings of yoga, which I teach is like a lot of people are 50 and up. And I'm like, what do you want to take to your exit with you? Because what you said is, when we cling and hold on to this stuff, only we are causing that suffering. Right. That's a Buddhist tradition, right? Mm-hmm. So you're holding on to the negativity, you're the one who's suffering. So why do you want to hold on to it? It's not serving you. So that's why the Indians will just send a good wish. Because one, the deed has been done. If they hold on to the negative feelings around that, then they're the ones who are creating negative karma for themselves. And then they're imposing suffering and pain. So only you can release yourself from that. Nobody else can.
0: Right, right. And if you're holding on to that negativity and pain, you're also causing that in oh, others. Oh, totally. Right. Hurt people hurt people. Yes. Um, how does somebody who leans more towards, um, I'm trying to use these terms right, and I don't know if I am, but somebody who leans more towards being swadic deal with people who are more Tomasic. Uh-huh. Was that the right uh-huh. word? Um, cause you know, we're all interacting with each other and as much as you want to, at least I know that this is the way that I view the world is, you know, I just kind of want to embrace everybody. Right. There are personalities that cause friction uh-huh. And that happens to everyone. So how do Swatic people deal with Tamasic people? And then do Swatic people upset Tamasic people? How do they deal with the Swatic people?
1: Well, I think, I think to answer your question... Um, how do we get along, I guess? Yeah, well, one, I think when you understand who they are, and that sometimes people can't help it. You know, this works for me. Um, because it's a mindset, right? Mm-hmm. When I see people who are maybe toxic and have negativity and have, are very narrow-minded, they're not inclusive. They're just—they're like have blinders on. I I just look at them, and one, I have compassion for them. Two, I realize that they can't help it. They are a product of their environment and their upbringing, and they're not—they're ignorant in their evolution. And that's not meaning they're stupid. They're just, they don't know any different. And some people don't want to know different. My dad was a great example. Like he was hard. He was not open to any of this kind of talk, very closed with his feelings and kind of at times a jerk. And the only way that I could learn to be with him was to understand and have compassion. For one, he wasn't interested in growing as a soul. And I just would say, okay, well, you're just going to have to come back and do this all over again. And that's your issue, not mine. But in the meantime, I just would have to also pick and choose times that I had enough energy to deal with him so that I wasn't drawn into his tamasic negative energy. Um, or react to it more than anything. You know, like mm-hmm. like get my feelings hurt, finding out the feeling that he was too abrasive. You know, he just would say things that were mean, but he didn't mean them. It's just who he was. So, I think when you have an understanding of who those people are and then try to show them through your actions, be a teacher to them. Like be a teacher to the people who are negative around you by showing up
0: Yeah, and it can be really easy to absorb that negative energy into yourself, you know, and I know that that's happened to me on occasion where, you know, somebody just really upset me and I have gotten so much better at it as I get older to kind of put a divide between my energy and other people's energies when, you know, they're threatening to bring me down or to upset me. I don't succeed every single time. But I do catch myself asking the same question. You know, why did that person make me feel like that? Like, what, what about that person? Because it's not the person nobody can ever make you feel, um, who was it? Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, right? Nobody can ever make you feel like a victim, I think was her saying, I'm gonna have to look that up. But um, it's a really great saying that she had about that. It's within you accepting it, you know, accepting the negativity from somebody else. But one of the things that I really liked about what you said is building that empathy. I think that again, because we're a scorekeeping society, and because we're always trying to get to the top, Mm -hmm. we don't build up enough empathy within us for for other people. And I think when you've been taken advantage of Mm -hmm. (laughs) by others, you tend to hold back on Mm -hmm. that empathy a Mm -hmm. lot, too. It's kind of... um, that's kind of a Lila, right? How much empathy you're going to put out and how much oh, yeah. you're going to hang on to sometimes.
1: Well, and I think that when you've been taken advantage of or you've been hurt deeply, I mean, I've had some pretty significant deceits and just devastating hurt, right? My true nature from the time I was little was I just loved everybody, you know, and I got hurt because of that because I never saw like people... Like I never could figure out why people did what they did. And it caused me a lot of pain and suffering. And so I realized now that I have to draw really good boundaries. So drawing really good boundaries is important. And then... it's always a process. Like each disappointment and each hurt, you have to process to get over it. And um, do you truly ever get over a hundred percent? There's always work to do. But again, if you're holding on to it, then again, you're the one who's suffering. But everybody who we have a response to, I feel it's we have to ask ourselves, like, what is it about them that's triggering me? You know, and sometimes it could. Be we're exactly alike. Like people just, they used to think that I was bitchy. And because I came from a pretty well-known family back East that I was a rich bitch, but actually in reality, I was like painfully shy. And so this girl could be painfully shy and I'm projecting out to her just in the simplest terms that she's whatever and it could be completely the opposite and she's just not good at connecting with people so I'm not going to let her upset my day it's like come on we're all living together here like why am I starting my day off like this like silly me. So now I don't care. And I'm flipping the script. So I'm changing it because in yoga too, we always cultivate the opposites. So if you want to turn a negative into a positive, you have to flip it into a positive. And it just makes it for a more harmonious way of being. And over time, maybe she'll switch if she doesn't. Okay, I did my best. I'm not responsible for the outcome. Yeah, it's not my job. It's not my job. I say that a lot. That's one of my
0: you know <laughs> it's not my job to change people and no, you know, it's funny because today um, I'm married for 22 years, I dated for four years before that. so it was like a total of 26 years with the same family, you know, then the divorce happened. And uh, my former mother in law didn't really know how to handle it. Mm -hmm. She was mad at me and all this stuff. And then something happened, uh, where she saw my side (laughs) of this situation. Mm -hmm. And we became really good friends. The divorce started in 2015. So, you know, it's been a good six, seven years now. So there would be times where she was really distant. And mm-hmm. I respected that. I just thought, you know, she needs her space. And then she would get really close. And, you know, she would introduce me to people three years later as her daughter in law. And so for about, a good year now, she made a purposeful effort to really put a divide in there. And I thought, well, okay, I still consider her family. I've known her for way more than half of my life. And I thought, well, okay, you know, if she wants to keep the distance. She can keep the distance I will still think about her and I wish her well. And today is her birthday. So on my way home, I haven't talked to her in probably eight months, maybe even longer, I gave her a call. And so we talked for almost an hour, you know, Mm. I don't know that she's gonna want to talk to me again, or, you know, even call me or this is going to change anything. And that's, completely fine with me. And I guess that's acceptance to understand that this is the way that the relationship is. And I honor the other person's wishes and don't wish them ill. And I think it's kind of nice to have a relationship like that in your life. Sometimes, of course, I wish that she would talk to me like she used to, but I know that that's probably not going to happen. And I'm okay with that. But it's nice to right. be able to compare other relationships to something where you're just so comfortable with allowing the other person to be who they are, whether they want to be in your life or not, and learning from that, you know, so I do learn from this every time about other relationships that either rub me the wrong way, impact me negatively, Um and you know trying to bring them closer to where this one is where i can go you know i honor this person for who they are and we need distance right
1: now
0: right (laughs) you know sometimes it's it's like that
1: well sometimes three things i i will say about that is one one of our biggest lessons i believe is no expectations no disappointments. We are a society of expectation. And, you know, that was a big lesson for me. And I still work on it every day. It's like, you know, my teacher would say, Well, who's setting the expectation? And I'm like, I am. And mm-hmm. he's like, Well, who is the I? And I'm like, Oh my God. He's like, Well, it's your ego, you know? And just because you're setting an expectation doesn't mean that somebody's going to fulfill it. And also, did you communicate the expectation? You, you could say in a conversation, like, say with your kids, Well, I thought they were going to do, da, da, da. And it's like, well, one, did you communicate that? Well, no, that was an expectation that you set. And that puts people in a position of failing because if we have high expectations because we are perfectionists, we're like OCD or whatever, people can't always meet our criteria. They're just doing them and they're doing it the best that they can. The other thing is, I think that we are all conditioned to think that in relationships, that we need to have a fight and break up. And sometimes you just need a Mm timeout, you know, and it doesn't mean that anybody did anything wrong. It just means that the relationship just needs separation for growth on both persons. And sometimes people just are in our lives for a period of time, and that's really all they're meant to be there for. And then they move on because your time with them is over. Um, But I think ultimately, if we go to the root of it, our feelings get hurt. And then we question ourselves like, well, what did I do? Like, why don't because we all want to be accepted, you know, and, you know, and you had all this history. I too married a long time and married to the family. And then when my daughter got married in 2018, it was the first time I had seen my ex-husband's family in 15 years. And wow, yeah, but they were just so gracious to me. It was like no time had passed. But do I keep in touch with them? No, but on Facebook, we acknowledge each other and everything. There's no ill will just because I left their son because we had a foundation if i called them tomorrow they would be super friendly with me but there's no need to you know um right we've all moved on i love them dearly but you know my time with them is is done for now and what's interesting too is that when you're on a path like this um You start to realize that we have a lot of acquaintances and we have a lot of people in our lives that come in and out. But when you're journeying into yourself, it's kind of a lonely path because you realize that there are a lot of toxic relationships out there and you don't want to do that anymore. And you learn to be a little bit more content within and you need a lot less. And then your circle becomes a little smaller. But I think it's just Nature prepares you. You know, we're not taking any of this stuff with us. And the Buddhist way, also too, is teaches about non-attachment to things and people. And the more you can detach from that which isn't needed, the more peaceful you are. You know, we don't need all the stuff that we think we need.
0: Oh, definitely. You know, I look around myself and just the clutter. You know, when yeah,
1: you think...
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't even understand how I've gotten this much clutter. I had um, the house completely empty and in the last five years, somehow things have crept back in. Filled it up again. Right? Yeah. And when you have too much, it does create a state of unrest and stress. I just look at this stuff and I'm like, do I give it away? Do I try to sell it? (laughs) I mean, how do I get rid of this stuff? Now that becomes the issue. It's no longer how do I get things that I want, but how do I get rid of these things that I no longer need?
1: Well, what I did last year was just the first time normally when I have to move... I usually can do it in a semi-organized fashion, but because we were under this crazy time frame, yeah, um, I said, okay, let me just move the stuff, and then normally I'll give stuff away to Goodwill or whatever. But you know what? This time I said, no. I have a Macari and a Poshmark, and I have my little store, and I just decided this is going to be a hobby for me, and I'm going to have fun with it, and I'm going to slowly go through things. Like I just went through my closet last week because when I moved in, everything just went in there. Even in the heat, I'm sweating up there and I'm like, no, you know what? (laughs) I need to know where everything is. And so I've got my pile that I'm going to take pictures and put it on Poshmark and Macari. Then I have my pile that I'm going to take to Goodwill and that's going to be my next step. But here's the thing. I don't have to do it all tomorrow and I can have fun doing it. That's
0: so important because you do get into that state of mind. Like, I need to get rid of this stuff and I need to get it done yesterday.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm making money. And I mean, I'm having a ball and I'm getting savvier each time I do it. And I'm enjoying it because, you know, my husband also collects vintage motorcycles. And over in India, he has a ton of vintage restored bikes. And so that's his passion. And so he's like on eBay scouring for these original parts and stuff. So I was like, I can't beat him. I might as well join him. <laughs> and so now I'm doing my poshing and, you know, All of a sudden I'll hear cha-ching and I've made some money because somebody just bought something that even if it's for $10, you know, they pay for the shipping. It's just, it's a hobby, you know, Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, I would have impulsively just gotten rid of that stuff. And instead, probably to date, I've made like $4,000 on my stuff. Yeah, I definitely need to do something like that. Yes. And then you feel really good. And then somebody else is repurposing your things and your stuff is living on through somebody else that's really appreciating it, because right. they took the time to buy it, you know, and then you take that money and go on vacation.
0: <laughs> right, right. Now, that is really good way to do that. Um, I was going to ask you, when I hear yoga, and you were saying this earlier, that people had started to look at yoga as a exercise rather than a practice Mm -hmm. i hear so many different types of yoga like there's you know there's hot yoga and burkham yoga and there's fast yoga and slow yoga and (laughs) um what's the difference between these types of yoga are some of them just purely exercise and what's the difference between practicing yoga as part of your lifestyle um and doing some of these, these other types of yogas that I just mentioned.
1: Okay, so the original yoga, the traditional ancient yoga that's 4,000 years old plus is Hatha yoga. And Hatha yoga, Hatha means sun and moon, okay? So you're taking Mm -hmm. energy from two channels in the body, the Ida and Pingala, and you merge them together and they go up the spine and awaken the chakras, okay? So traditional Hatha yoga is blending breath with movement. Now, Ashtanga yoga is similar to Hatha, except they do it in like their series, so instead of different poses, there's like a series that you do. And as you advance you do all these really intense postures, they focus a lot on alignment. Then you have Anusara, which is another, you don't hear about that so much anymore, but Anusara is also very much alignment based. You have Iyengar yoga, which is based with using props to get you in specific yoga poses. Those are the top four that came about, but it stems from Hatha first. Then people now through marketing, hot yoga is not really yoga. It's just yoga done in a heated room. Um, power yoga is not really yoga. That's a marketing ploy where they move through the postures fast and maybe keep the room at like 90 degrees to sweat so that you think you're in, getting a really good workout and you are. Then there's vinyasa yoga, and vinyasa is just literally means to link the poses together. When you're breathing and moving, you are doing vinyasa, but it's again another marketing ploy. Be Bikram is, we don't even consider Bikram true yoga and Bikram does the same 25 poses no matter what in a hot heated room. Okay. So with Bikram, if you're heating the room to 105 or 108 degrees, you're warming the body up, but you're also tricking the body to think that it can go into poses that it anatomically is not really ready to go into and you end up getting a lot of injury with different body types you can be creating too much heat in the body which can lead to a lot of anger and a lot of agitation so traditionally as a yoga therapist yoga is a modality for healing the mind and the body so when it's practiced therapeutically meaning that you're taking into account the person the person's issues their what we call their doshas there's three types. There's Vata, Pitta, Kapha, Vata's air element, Pitta's fire, Kapha's earth. So if you're giving somebody who has a Pitta fire personality, and you give them hot yoga, you're going to exacerbate their Pitta in them, which is going to make them angry, anxious, all the things I just said, that is not going to be healing for them, it's actually going to Mm -hmm. hurt them. So unfortunately, now they have strap yoga, they have block yoga those are props and they've created yoga around it they have goat yoga like all of these yogas it's crazy
0: right that doesn't look like fun to me I mean I (laughs) I love goats me too Um, right (laughs) my cousin had a bunch of little pygmy goats for her daughter's fourth birthday party. She had all the little goats out there and they were little tiny guys. I mean, you could pick them up like little babies, but all of them had hooves. Uh (laughs) And they did jump on me. And whenever I see these advertisements for goat yoga, I think, oh my gosh, I would not want one of
1: those jumping on my back. I mean, they are small, but they have hooves. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I think they're cute and everything, but it's really not yoga. Okay, so marketing took over and created all these different things. But people would ask me a question well, then how do you teach a group of 35 people? as a yoga therapist, I have a trained eye to teach yoga in a therapeutic application. You know, I've had four back surgeries, I have tremendous issues going on in my spine that yeah, yeah. So I know from my schooling and my education, how to take care of myself. But when you're teaching from a therapeutic place, and you're teaching people one to breathe when they're moving, I break the poses down. So I can say, nobody's ever gotten hurt in my class in 25 years, because I'm approaching it from a very safe space. And I'm giving you time to get into the poses, I'm giving you breakdowns to get into the pose so that if you're breathing, and you're really paying attention to your body, your body will cue you when you should back off. So everybody is different. Not everybody can get into the same pose. Not everybody's supposed to be in the same pose. Not everybody can do triangle correctly, they'll do it to the best of their ability. But over time, as they keep practicing, their bodies will start to change and give them more range of motion and more flexibility so that they can attain maybe better alignment. But more importantly, the asana part of it, the physical part of it is to prepare you for meditation. So that when you're in shavasana, which is the final meditation, your mind is quiet. Mm -hmm. Because if you're paying attention to everything, the nuances of every pose, and you're breathing, you can't think about your life stuff. And it's asking you to pay attention. So this is part of the discipline of like you said, like, well, how do you do this? Well, you train, it's a discipline, okay. And there's times when you're in a class, And I can hear people where they, it's too hard for them. Their mind is in the pose, and I can call them out because I can hear it. I'm like, okay, I know your mind is like, oh, or you're bored or there's tons of things that go on. And the thing is recognize it when it's happening, come back to your breath breathe, be present, and then you're into the next thing. So this is training you. This is giving you that discipline that you need to be Mm -hmm. present, to be in the moment, to not be anywhere else, but right here, right now. And you'd be surprised. I mean, we all, I work out stuff in my class within myself. It's just whatever is coming up that day. So when you start practicing that way or having a teacher that teaches that way, then you take the yoga into your life. So for instance, you get up in the morning, you become aware of your thoughts. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. Meditation just asks you to be present all the time to what you're doing and observing, you know, the thoughts come in, the thoughts come out. It's kind of like taming
0: that monkey mind that they talk about, right? Because
1: that's what we have.
0: You know, we have that monkey mind that's constantly like, oh, look, there's a banana over there that I want to get. And you're supposed to be focusing on something. And sometimes it is really hard to reel that back in because you really want to go after that banana.
1: Really hard. But again, tying it back to what we said before, which is impulsivity. We're all impulsive. So do you act on the impulsivity? Wanting that banana is a distraction. Right. It's a thought to distract you from what you're supposed to be doing. Okay, but when you're in a class, like what happened a lot too when we were doing the stuff online, see, I could never see anybody because I was streaming live, but I would take attendance. So I knew who was on and because I knew everybody really well, I know them. But a couple of them told me later on, like, maybe a year into it, see, they were starting to lose interest, they were starting to lose focus, they were at home, so they would get up off their mat. And so I went crazy one day and said in the class sitting in my living room, like this is where we have our best what I call Dharma talks is Okay. When you sit on that mat, you're stepping onto sacred space. You are taking the next hour to be with yourself. Intimacy means into me see. I'm looking into me. Okay. You would never get up in a class environment and walk away. So how disrespectful to yourself And I would like to get up some days and walk off this mat because I feel sometimes like I'm talking to myself because I don't get any feedback. It was like Mm -hmm. some days I was like, I don't know how I can do this again today. Like I'm getting no energy.
0: It's just me. Right. Because you're doing everything to a camera. Can't see
1: what everybody you're not getting that. Nothing for two years for two years. And so oh, that would be hard. It's hard. But again, I had to dig deep some days. And but then I said, I'm showing up even though some days I don't want to be here because I made a commitment to all of you to be here. And so you need to show up for yourself. And I tell students now even in the physical space, like you're stepping onto sacred space, whatever's going on in your world, when you walk in this door, you have to leave it behind. No one would bring a cell phone in to a studio to take a yoga class. Mm-hmm. So basically, you're making that commitment to yourself to be here to nourish yourself to look into yourself and to ask yourself, what do you need today so that you can take care of your needs to be healthy?
0: Yeah, it's connecting a lot. Like you said, that mind body connection, it's bringing in the mindfulness, it's bringing in that meditation. Yes, And definitely, you know, you have to make a choice a lot of times with the cell phone. It's just it's so easy to get sucked into whatever social media, whatever it is that you're doing on that cell phone, or even like reading the daily news cycle, because the daily news cycle is also created in a way that kind of addicts you. And you have to choose what you're going to give your attention to because you can't give your attention to your cell phone. And healing yourself at the same time. And I know that is so hard. I remember a couple of years ago, I caught myself spending way too much time on my phone. Yeah, I would start dinner, and I'd have to let something sizzle for two minutes. And for those two minutes, I was scrolling on the phone, and then I'd go and stir it. You know, (laughs) it's an addiction. It's such a bad addiction. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I had a ukulele sitting around that I I didn't know how to play it. And I thought, I'm going to learn how to play this ukulele. I'm going to spend those two minutes that I'm just mindlessly scrolling, mindfully trying to figure out how to make music out of this instrument. And I ended up teaching myself how to play over the rainbow, um, not over the, uh,
1: oh gosh. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget what. I know that Hawaiian song.
0: I taught myself how to play that song. And it was amazing. In that amount of time, you realize that if you're not scrolling and actually purposefully doing something that's going to make a difference in your life, you can get yourself to a happier place because there's nothing better than learning how to play a song, you know, like you want to show the whole world that you can play this song, whereas there's nothing there to show after you're scrolling through your phone.
1: Well, and you're wasting time. You're just wasting time.
0: Right, that you will never get back. I think that right. you know, time is more precious than gold and we need to be more attuned to that. But I do like the fact that yoga brings so much of that mindfulness and uh, kind of slows things down. I, I think that they're also because our lives are so busy and especially a Western life is designed to be very busy. We want stimulation at every yeah. single moment. It can be really Uncomfortable to find yourself in a place where things are slowed
1: down that much, right? You said the key word. To your point, it's uncomfortable to be still, and you need to work through that discomfort of being still. And realizing, like I have a saying, like if you had this last week to stay alive, like what would you focus on? And it wouldn't be scrolling through your phone. Mm -hmm. We're not going to live forever. Like time is ticking and time you don't get back. And how many more sunsets are you going to see? How many more cups of coffee are you going to drink? I mean, you're going to get to a point in your life where you're on the other side. And then it's like, wow, you realize like, wow, I may only have 30 more years, good years, God willing. I'm already on the other side of that. How am I going to spend that time? What's important to me? And um, how do I use this time wisely? Or do I just want to waste it?
0: I love these concepts. And just discussing with and listening to Maureen explain them has such a grounding effect on me. There's so much information here, and I think I'm going to re-listen to this episode frequently just to remind myself of how much my own happiness and peace I have control over and how to let go of the things that I don't have control over, especially that clutter that we talked about. I definitely need to be more mindful about my purchases, but also my scrolling habits and my expectations. As I said, there's so much in this episode. Please come back next week for the second part of this amazing talk with Maureen Dearing Davis. And don't forget to check the show notes for links to Maureen's website and other things that we talked about. Be sure to send me your questions and suggestions to help me design the episodes that most interest you. And please take a second to rate this episode. Your rating moves this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach More people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com, all at The Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E L L E podcast. I am still Annan, The Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, groundedness, peace elegance and beauty.